Good evening. So we usually think about uh, enlightenment as that which will solve our problems, right? And it's kind of like, I got these problems now, but then we're at Spirit Rock, there's something called enlightenment, or sometimes they call it awakening, but there's something, and it sounds kind of like, if I get that, it solves my problems. And then we kind of like go looking for whatever we think that is. But maybe, uh, maybe we have it reversed. Maybe it's when we have no problems that enlightenment arises. So what on earth could that mean? <laughs> to have no problems. <laughs> because we have problems, right? <laughs> um, so it doesn't mean that the the first noble truth is suspended. That, that truth, that, that there is suffering, that suffering in a sense is woven into the fabric of being human. To have no problems doesn't mean to banish that truth. But maybe it means something like, uh, life becomes uh, frictionless. So Kate spoke about the, the hindrances. And in a sense, they're all different forms of friction. Friction with experience. And samadhi, the unification of mind, collectedness of mind, is possible when there's less and less friction. And so tonight I want to talk about, uh, about samadhi in the context of a path of letting go. Samadhi is a product of letting go. Now usually we, we think about uh, concentration as something we want to get so we can be peaceful. But as uh, Wes said, you know, the practice is about making peace with the human condition. And uh, it's, it's out of that gesture of making peace that the unified, settled mind arises. 
Now, last night uh, we heard about um, yeah the five hindrances and um, sometimes they take a very gross form. You know, for example, restlessness can take a very gross form where it's like the most obvious thing, like I am restless, right? not subtle at all. But there are subtler kind of twins of each of the, the hindrances. And it's said that restlessness, that, that it is only like in a person who is very free, that restlessness is fully uprooted. And in a sense, restlessness is, is always in tension with samadhi, with the settling, the unification of the mind. But restlessness is so uh, pervasive that maybe you can get the sense that we, we live life to a very deep extent waiting for something. Even when we're practicing, in a sense, we're waiting for the next breath or we're waiting for, we're waiting for concentration, for samadhi, we're waiting for insight, we're waiting for this pain to fade, this heartbreak to release. There's an aspect of waiting for something. But in this practice, meditation is, is, um, is a bit like we're, we're waiting for nothing. You know? And what would that actually be like to wait for absolutely nothing? And so we ask ourselves the question, like, in practicing this settling, this unification of the mind, we practice living as if this moment were all we were ever to have. And sometimes those kinds of practices are specifically directed around reflecting on our own mortality. But I'm not even alluding to that. I'm asking, like, if this moment, like just this one, were the only thing we would ever have and we would live it eternally, could the heart be free? And the Buddha's answer, Yes. It's really samadhi that uh, turns the Dharma into something more than philosophy. You know, like I th- I'm, I'm intrigued by Buddhist psychology and philosophy and it's, kind of, it's, it's good, you know. But I'm not going to like 
devote my life to it. You know. <laughs> it's uh it needs it's like the roots are in the settledness like it it takes on a whole another life when the kind of insights and philosophy psychology is paired with the unification of the mind. Now, all of this talk uh, about uh, samadhi usually gives the impression that our thoughts are, uh, are bad. And we actually usually begin our meditation careers with that assumption that our thoughts are bad. And, uh, you know, we all know that kind of, that moment where we realize like, whoa, I was so lost in something. And then it's like we have to, like we force ourselves to take like this walk of shame <laughs> back to the breath. And it's kind of like, I sort of sometimes feel like, like a dog that just like peed on the rug kind of thing. Like, like, just like uh, okay, right? But uh, let's, you know, let's not like, underestimate the value of thinking, right? It's, uh, it's likened to a sense, the si a, a sixth sense, right? And in the same way that we wouldn't vilify ourselves for hearing something, we don't do that to ourselves when we think something. The the unification of mind is, uh, it's important because for a lot of people, it, it's the beginning of a deeper faith in themselves, in the path, in, the, in, uh, in meditation. And I remember one, one student uh, when I was in LA, who went to, I think it was her first retreat and came back and, and had really settled in. And I remember before she had left, she was like pretty, kind of a lot of self-doubt and kind of doubt, the hindrance of doubt and questioning, like, can I do this? Is this for me? And she came back from that retreat um, and uh, it was quite beautiful. She was just like, you know, I, I, I know I can do this. And it was just like this very simple conviction, like, I know I can do this. And she had seen a capacity of her mind that is fully obscured and we often just wouldn't know unless we do something to cultivate simplicity, stillness, gathering. So this is William James. 
Our normal waking consciousness is but one special type of consciousness. Whilst all about it, parted from it by the filmiest of screens, there lie potential forms of consciousness entirely different. We may go through life without suspecting their existence, but no account of the universe can be final, which leaves these other forms of consciousness disregarded. How to regard them is the question, for they are so discontinuous with ordinary consciousness. They may determine attitudes, though they cannot furnish formulas, and open a region, though they fail to give a map. They forbid a premature closing of our accounts with reality. Now, sometimes in dharma circles and meditation kind of communities, um, samadhi or altered states of consciousness are are almost um, uh, fetishized and um, they're like the only currency within the dharma. And that, I think, is a mistake. But at the same time, I don't want to be dismissive of them. And it is very powerful to know oneself and the world from a mind that is deeply steady. It changes how we think about our life when we're more frenzied. Life uh, can feel very relentless. Like it's just so, it's so intense being uh, alive, being human. And we're maybe surprised by that when we actually see it so clearly, you know, in these very favorable conditions of, of comfort and ease. And, and yet even just, just, you know, not doing much as we're not doing uh, is very intense. And so we, uh, this is actually an insight. Sometimes we talk about like this realm, samsara or something like this and one of the ways that, that it's described, one of the ways that um, the human realm is described is that it's like a bombardment, like the senses are, we're always being bombarded. The world is always touching us. It's like we can't stop experience from impinging upon consciousness. Suzuki Roshi says, you cannot stop your life, you know. You are always changing into something else. Always. Incessantly. In the light of the kind of relentlessness of change, Samadhi can feel very healing, 
can feel very, there's like something in the heart that's very deeply soothed by it. Life starts to feel more complete as the mind gets more unified. Now the different definitions, but one definition uh, is that uh, samadhi is the ability to attend to whatever we decide is relevant. Whatever we decide is relevant, whether that be the sensations at the tip of the nose, or that be uh, the space around us, or that be the person we're speaking to. One of uh, my main teachers, Shinzen Young, said, um, simply stated, Concentration, samadhi, is the single most universally applicable and deeply empowering skill that a human being can cultivate. And he says this because uh, the, the unification of the mind, the gathering of the mind, uh, helps us do everything we might do better. And almost remarkably makes pain much more tolerable, much less burdensome, makes pleasure more satisfying, richer, and makes self-understanding more and more accessible. And so he goes on to say that even if you couldn't live if you couldn't live, if you couldn't extend your life any longer than whatever our life will be, developing this unification of mind means that we're so much more deeply in touch with moment by moment experience that it feels like we're living more, living richer, living longer. And you know that experience of like, maybe in the busyness of your world, just like, and the attention is so unstable that we can go through a whole day and really like not have been there. And in a sense, not really be deeply alive. And that day's gone. Now, mindfulness is, is often distinguished from, from concentration or samadhi where concentration is narrow, you know, it's a narrow focus and mindfulness is broad. But in the suttas that the Buddha really uh, didn't make such rigid distinctions and concentration is not necessarily on, like focusing in in a very narrow way. We can be very concentrated, you know, and have a huge, the, atten the scope of attention be extremely broad. The Buddha says that uh, it's really the combination of samadhi and, and, and uh, mindfulness, wisdom, that lead us to more and more freedom. So we can think about samadhi as uh, 
really the pleasure of letting go. The pleasure of letting go. When we're asked to let go, the mind kind of asks the question like, why? (laughs) And we do all have uh, quite a bit of redemptive hope in clinging, you know. Uh, Because in this like, weird twisted way, it like kind of works, right? We're all talking about like, let go, let go, but we're all kind of like, yeah, but you know, let's have the voice of clinging in this discussion, right? (laughs) It's not useless, you know, right? But uh, what, what does letting go get us? One thing that clinging does is that uh, it, uh, it always makes things more complicated. And the letting go is, uh, it's simplifying. And so I want to talk about talk about sort of different aspects of letting go in the context of developing samadhi. Uh, the Buddha said that, that one, the meditator who makes letting go the primary object achieves, achieves samadhi more easily. And there are different kind of flavors of, of of that pleasure, the pleasure born of the, the fruit of seclusion, of simplicity, and different kinds of, of delight and joy are cataloged of like a soft, sweet contentedness and a kind of rapturous, exalted body, pervading, the Buddha said, pervaded like, like a... a a lake with springs flowing, you know, into the lake, just pervaded with the cool fountain that, that uh, is born of seclusion. And there are comments about uh, samadhi, like just, just ending that sense of something being missing like pervasive, subtle sense of lack of like this moment is incomplete. And so these are all like different flavors of, of, uh, of contentedness or the, the pleasure of letting go, but how, how does this happen? So people often worry about getting, getting attached to, to samadhi. And um, there, are, there are stories, there are many stories of, of casualties along these lines. Um, Joseph Goldstein, 
told a, a story where you know he was practicing in India with Kawanka, and there was a phase of practice where just uh, the the samadhi was just like exquisite, really delicious, and he described just sitting for hours at a time, and it was just like a he called it a body of light, you know, just and. Uh, he ran out of money. He went back to the States to earn more money, to get back to India, to get back to his body of light. <laughs> and what he found was a body of twisted steel, you know. And he said two years of the most like excruciating time in his practice, uh, trying to get back, yeah. And I had a friend who was a very dedicated meditator, but like he was kind of a disgruntled meditator. <laughs> like he was just like, I don't know, I, I wasn't sure what was going on or like what, what was happening. And one day he told me, he was like, you know, 35 years ago, I had this experience in my backyard. <laughs> I'm not joking, these are like word for word. <laughs> I had this experience in my backyard and I've been trying to get back there, you know? <laughs> and it was like, so sad, you know? It's like, um, but they, they suffered so we don't have to, right? Okay, so I don't think you have to be so afraid, like, err on the side of getting a little attached. It's okay. You, if you're sincere, you'll see it. It will burn. You will know it quickly. Just be honest. So, in developing this unification of mind, what we're, we're doing is um, we're really, we're trying to get happy enough with this moment. To get happy enough with this moment. Suzuki Roshi said, "To, to live is enough. To live is enough. And we bring that attitude of like, enoughness into the practice. Much of this is about patience and perseverance. Much of it is about acknowledging that our concentration is, it's, it's conditioned by many factors, right? It's not, it's not like our will is actually the factor that determines whether we're concentrated or not. And often what happens is we, we sort of like kind of perch ourselves up in our mind and we're like, I'm gonna get fucking concentrated. <laughs> and we're just like, really 
you know, like putting all of the pressure on that one little wish, which is itself tangled up with greed, most likely, you know. And, and then it's like, yeah, it's just this whole thing about uh, the kind of drama of the self just arises out of that. And so we're, we're, not, uh, we're not trying to like effort harder, you know, we're, we're letting go. And so the, the path, the path of practice leads in many ways to this unification of mind. We are, as we sit, we're digesting our past. So everything that is undigested from our past returns. You know? And it's like we have to finish it. We have to like complete it. And the way that we complete it is by blessing it with awareness and love not once, but many times. We love it to death, as my teacher said. And through the, the months and years of our practice, it's like more and more of our past feels complete. And it doesn't, it's not electrified in the same way. It's not sticky in the way that Aaron described. We're developing a kind of confidence that we're not going to be ambushed by our own emotional material. It's like we've seen into enough corners of our being that it starts to feel more and more safe inside. And this is very helpful in settling into the silence, into the darkness. Our sila, our conduct, we are uh, cultivating a life without regret. And any time we act out of alignment with our own deepest values, it leaves a trace in the mind. It's like we start to get more and more sensitive to the, the instant, instant karma of causing harm. And we get clear on that feedback loop. It's like that feedback loop gets tighter and tighter. So we start to really sense that. And as we live more and more in deep alignment, we are not followed by our past decisions in the same way. We learn to uh, to let go of the need to be oriented. So 
I think largely as a function of our, of the need to be safe, you know, the aspiration to just be safe. We're like constantly locating ourselves between the past and the future, between here and there. We're orienting to the threats and opportunities. And as we start to feel more and more safe in our experience, it feels more and more natural to let go of, of those reference points, of, to let go of the need to be like narrating our experience which is a, a way, uh, I think, of making sure that we know the story and we know where it's going. We know how it ends. We know what we need. But it's safe here to let go. I hope it's safe. And so we start letting go into the quiet, and all the kind of echoes of like, of our normal reference points, of our desires and our aversions, of our past, our future. All of that comes up and we soften to it. We let go. Dogo Kensei Rinpoche. We should experience everything totally, never withdrawing into ourselves as a marmot hides in its hole. This practice releases tremendous energy which is usually constricted by the process of maintaining fixed reference points. Referentiality is the process by which we retreat from the direct experience of everyday life. Each moment of meditation is completely unique and full of potentiality. We're letting go of the the whole realm of hope and fear, which is very compelling. Like maybe you see your mind, like the way it kind of almost budgets pleasure, you know, like the way the promise of a certain pleasure at a certain time like supports and sustains the mind now. And that's okay, but it keeps us locked in referentiality. And so we are like actively letting go, like Dante's Inferno at the gates of hell, it says, abandon all hope ye who enter here. And we don't have that. 
on the door because that's like super depressing. <laughs> but uh, if you want to just imagine it, We're, we're learning to, uh, to let go of, uh, of self-harshness. You know, that's another form of friction. Self-kindness is frictionless. But self-harshness is like preoccupation it's harder to let go of the self that's hated than the self that's loved. It's easy to forget about the self that's loved. So we love ourselves. We have the aspiration to be settled to cultivate samadhi, but we are, in a sense, also letting go of uh, willfulness. Meaning, we can't be willing our samadhi. Ajahn Brahm, stillness means a lack of movement, since will causes the mind to move. To experience stillness, one must remove all will, all doing, all control. If you grasp a leaf on a tree and try your hardest to hold it still, no matter how hard you try, you'll never succeed. There will always be some vibration caused by slight tremors in your muscles. However, if you don't touch the leaf and just protect it from the breeze, the leaf comes to a natural state of stillness. And so as we sit, hope this is part of why we develop some continuity because mindfulness breeds mindfulness. Samadhi breeds samadhi. And so how we've been tending to our mind before this moment impacts what's here now. And so we come in, hopefully, to this moment with some continuity. And we soothe and settle the body. We let gravity have us. Maybe we breathe in some ways that allow us to feel more. We establish some attitude of like, what's here is good enough. There's goodness already here. This is enough. 
and we can stabilize the internal gaze in our thinking the there's usually a, a kind of roaming of the internal gaze the internal visual gaze it may be useful to just stabilize that steady that We use uh, mental noting as supportive often, not required. And sometimes it starts to feel bulky as the mind settles down, but that is supportive usually. Sometimes when we're sitting, we start to feel like almost like the gravitational pull of the internal dialogue. And there's not much time, but there's a window before we're fully absorbed in that bubble of thought where we can resist the tug. And we, we start to feel that pull and we just double down, we come back. Once we're in the kind of daydream, the only thing that wakes us up is the habit of the momentum of our practice or some other sensory experience. But we may be able to just like watch when we start to get that first moment, start to be pulled. And then we just keep letting go. In a sense, to attend in the first place, to offer attention, is to let go. To attend is to let go. We're not holding on to anything. It's like Sometimes the awareness grabs hold of an experience. We're not holding on to anything. We're surrendering to the flow of impermanence. We're not trying to make sense. We're not trying to understand what happened. We're not trying to figure out where we're going. We're just letting go. letting go of everything. At the end of a, end of a famous philosophical text uh, by uh, Wittgenstein, about philosophy and science and language. Um, he wrote, uh, my, my propositions are clarifying in this way. She who understands me finally recognizes them as senseless. When she has climbed out through them, 
on them, over them. She must, so to speak, throw away the ladder after she's climbed up on it. And same with all of these words. As we practice settling, we let go of all of it. And there's one more thing that we have to get really, really good at. Failing. This path just doesn't work unless we know how to fail with a lot of style. <laughs> You're looking at a professional. <laughs> really. The Buddha said, uh, whatever, whatever is not yours, let go, let go of it. This will be for your long-term welfare and happiness. And then the question like, what is not yours? The answer, everything. Just sit for a moment.